So to begin this episode, Ricky and I want to express some excitement that just happened to us this evening. Ricky and I went to our local Dairy Queen, grabbed a few hot dogs, and while we were waiting in line, one of the workers pointed out to Ricky's shirt, which was one of our crime salad shirts. I honestly, I just didn't have laundry. That's the only reason I wore that shirt. It's not even something I ever wear. And it's my shirt, thank you. So Te- Technically, <laughs> it's your shirt. Yeah. But anyway, uh, he was wearing one of our shirts, and the girl said, isn't that a podcast? And I kind of like, like I looked at his shirt, and I kind of like was almost like in shock. Like, oh my God. So honestly, like I forgot I even had the shirt on. I kind of just looked at her, and I was like, do you like that podcast? And she kind of was like, yeah, I really like that podcast. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. That's our podcast. And and she went, what did she say? She said, I feel like I'm like starstruck right now. And I felt like I was like fanstruck because I was like, what? Like, you know, our podcast. I don't know. Maybe this isn't a big deal for some of you guys. But to us, it's like a big milestone. I feel like if we had like a baby book, this would be definitely in there. Like a crime salad first things, you know. Oh, oh I <laughs> I had no idea what you're talking about. I was thinking like we were writing a baby book or like a, a children's story. But you mean like like kind of like those journals. It's like on this day, like milestone book. I took my first steps or whatever. <laughs> no, I don't know. It was pretty cool. I mean, it's it's something like the podcast is growing. Like we definitely aren't big, but it was just crazy that someone like in our own little town actually knew who we were. Yeah, you know? our own little bubble. But I mean, if I wasn't wearing the shirt, like we would have never found out. Yeah. So shout out to Caitlin at Dairy Queen. If you're hearing this, send us a DM on Instagram at Crime Salad Podcast and we'll send you a free shirt. And also, we want to thank you listeners for sending in a case that happened in your area. We think it would be really cool to talk about these cases on our show. Um, for those of you who haven't sent us anything, shoot us a message on Instagram at Crime Salad Podcast and tell us about a case that happened close to your home or in your state that you find interesting. We would love to talk about it on the show. Anyways, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad. This is Ashley. And with me always is my partner in crime, Ricky. I'm going to tell you now, this case is one of those ones that have always kept me up at night since it was first in the media. Stories about the death of a child always pull at the heartstrings of the public. But the death of a five-year-old AJ friend in 2019 is as heartbreaking as it is enraging. Despite numerous complaints filed against his parents to the Department of Child and Family Services and multiple investigations to rule out neglect, AJ somehow slipped through the cracks and there were deadly consequences. How could a child die at the hands of parents who were supposedly cleared by an organization whose mission is to protect kids? As a warning to our listeners, some of this case may be difficult to hear due to the reports of extreme child neglect and abuse. But with this episode, we hope to bring awareness to situations like this because you never know what's really happening behind closed doors. 
So we're going to tell you a little bit about Joanne Cunningham and Andrew Friend, the parents of AJ. The two met in a courthouse in 2012, and less than a decade later, they would end up back together. Andrew Friend was nearly 25 years older than Joanne and was born and raised in Crystal Lake, Illinois. In high school, he played both football and baseball, worked for the yearbook, and was the class of 1977's most desirable date. Despite his popularity, he was shy and quiet. He turned to alcohol from a young age to help him be more sociable and to deal with his feelings about his parents' divorce. After high school, he attended University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and got a degree in accounting in the early 80s. He would later go on to study law, getting his degree from John Marshall Law School in Chicago. After becoming bar certified, he returned to his hometown of Crystal Lake to join a local law firm. But due to his growing alcohol dependency, he was asked to leave in 1994. From there, Andrew's struggles only continued to grow. He attempted to keep working in law from his home, but business was slow. To get extra income, he worked part-time at a grocery store, though he told everyone that this was just to drum up legal business. In addition to heavy drinking, Andrew had a serious opiate addiction, taking all kinds of prescription drugs. Joanne Cunningham grew up in Illinois as well and shared similar struggles as Andrew. Her parents married right out of high school and two weeks before Joanne's birth, her father was arrested for burglarizing a home. From then on, her father was in and out of prison and in and out of Joanne's life. Her parents divorced in 1984 when Joanne was just a toddler, and by 2003, Joanne's father was homeless and addicted to drugs and alcohol. He died that same year. Joanne's mother, however, remarried and her children were closer to their stepfather than their real father. Growing up, Joanne played sports, got good grades in school, and never got in trouble. She was a seemingly happy little girl who wanted to go to art school. But everything changed when she got pregnant at the age of 16. She dropped out of school, moved in with her baby's father, Christopher Butler, and dedicated herself to caring for her new family. Though they were together for many years, Christopher was abusive towards Joanne, and they broke up when she was 23. Joanne moved back in with her mom and stepdad, attended cosmetology school, and began dating a guy named Craig Summerkamp. By 2007, they were engaged. That same year, Joanne began taking prescription painkillers to manage her worsening fibromyalgia. Over the next few years, her addiction to prescription painkillers worsened, and at times, she was taking up to 15 pills a day. So fast forward to 2012, Joanne was in the process of getting divorced from Craig Summercamp due to irreconcilable differences. And Craig claimed that Joanne was quite violent towards him when she was angry. She hired Andrew as her lawyer for the divorce. But getting closer with Andrew wasn't a good situation. Both were addicted to prescription drugs and opiates. 
And in the summer of that year, 2012, the first call to the Department of Children and Family Services hotline was made by someone who was concerned that Joanne was neglecting her seven-year-old foster child and was abusing prescription drugs. There was a small investigation, but the Department of Children and Family Services, also known as DCFS, did not find any credible evidence to support the accusations. But only a week later, DCFS received another call from a neighbor who was also very concerned about Joanne's drug abuse. This time, DCFS didn't investigate the claim themselves. Instead, they sent out a private company to keep an eye on the foster child, allowing this other company to take the lead on this investigation. The company noted that Joanne seemed to be going through a difficult time due to her divorce, but didn't notice any safety concerns for her children. The claim was ultimately dismissed and unfounded. According to friends and family, they knew things in Joanne's life weren't great. Between DCFS visits, Joanne was hallucinating, worried that people were out to kill her and her son, and she was more addicted to drugs than ever. By late August 2012, she had moved into Andrew Friend's house. Though he had started out as just her attorney, the two had grown close, doing drugs together, and Andrew testifying to DCFS about Joanne's stability. Now living with Andrew, her foster child was removed from Joanne's home in August of 2012. But not because of what you may be thinking, you know, the concerns for neglect or drug abuse that the callers on the hotline had reported, but because Joanne had violated the guidelines for foster care because she had moved without informing DCFS of her new address in Crystal Lake. Given their histories and struggles with drug dependency, it's not a surprise that Andrew and Joanne's relationship was far from peaceful. The couple fought aggressively and often, and even found themselves charged with criminal contempt after removing items from Joanne's ex-husband's house during her divorce proceedings. Joanne served 30 days in prison while Andrew served 14. Once out of prison, Andrew and Joanne continued their manic worrisome behavior. They argued at all hours of the day, were often high, and continued to steal from others to afford their prescription pill addiction. In the first few months they lived together, police were called a half dozen times for various reasons, usually related to their drug use or arguments. According to roommates and neighbors, Joanne was the more violent one. She was known to explode in anger at small things, and Andrew admitted that she had hit him more than once. With police being called so often, DCFS was notified as well, but still they didn't investigate. By the end of 2012, a third hotline call was placed that Joanne was still abusing prescription drugs, and that the house is unfit for her son. And for the third time, the claim was decided to be unwarranted. This is actually relatively typical for DCFS. Only one out of every four calls is deemed credible enough to have a further investigation. Though no longer a foster parent, Joanne and Andrew still had their now 12-year-old son living with them at the start of 2013. But due to the chaos of his home life, he wanted to go live with his grandma, who is Joanne's mom. 
The custody battle was difficult and Joanne's mother testified to how horrible life at home was for her grandson. There was rarely food in the house. The house was covered in animal feces and other dirt. And they were often without utilities like water or heat. But worst of all, Joanne, particularly when high on oxycodone or cocaine, would threaten to kill or harm her son. A judge granted Joanne's mother full custody of her son until Joanne could stay sober and receive treatment for her drug abuse. With her son no longer living with them, Andrew and Joanne received no visits from DCFS or the police during the next few months. The couple had little income and were constantly stealing to make ends meet and support their growing addictions. And to add to the situation, Joanne was pregnant with the couple's first child together. Andrew Thomas Friend Jr., or as everyone called him, AJ, was born on October 14, 2013. At birth, nurses knew something was wrong. AJ and Joanne both tested positive for opiates and benzodiazepines. Joanne claimed she didn't use heroin throughout her pregnancy, but some of the nurses believed they saw fresh needle marks in her arms and both her and her baby were showing signs of withdrawal. The hospital social worker got involved after these findings and reported them to DCFS two days after AJ's birth. He spent the first month of his life in the hospital with doctors and nurses working around the clock to help clear the drugs and their effects from his system. With DCFS involved, Joanne and Andrew were both tested for drugs and found to have heroin in their systems. AJ was then given to one of Joanne's cousins to be cared for until Joanne and Andrew sobered up and made their home safe for a child to live in, which meant getting the heat to work and removing black mold buildup, standing water in the basement, and piles of garbage inside. Though Joanne's cousin was growing close with baby AJ, she and DCFS hoped that they could ultimately have AJ living at home with his biological parents. But for nearly a year, neither made any effort to even see their son. Though Joanne's cousin was growing close with baby AJ, she and DCFS hoped that they could ultimately have AJ living at home with his biological parents. But for nearly a year, neither made any effort to even see their son. But by the start of 2014, Andrew and Joanne were ready to be parents to AJ. They contacted his social worker and agreed to attend rehab, counseling, parenting classes, and to meet a long list of conditions in order to be parents to AJ. According to Jamie Mowers, the caseworker assigned, Joanne expressed a willingness to work on her sobriety and had a deep love for her children. Andrew and Joanne started with short weekly supervised visits with AJ, with the hope that by the end of the year, AJ could be living full-time with his parents. As spring of 2014 unfolded, the couple was still on track to get AJ back, attending counseling and maintaining their sobriety. Despite minimal hiccups in trying to get AJ back, a judge still denied their request to have AJ home by his first birthday in October. For months, they continued their supervised meetings with AJ, eventually working up to unsupervised time spent together. Joanne, now sober, gave birth to another baby boy in December of 2014. 
Though there were concerns about the baby's safety, he was found to have no drugs in his system. And because his parents were attending regular meetings for treatment, Andrew and Joanne were allowed to have their second son at home with them. Despite growing financial problems, Andrew and Joanne remained sober and met the judges and caseworkers' expectations for caring for AJ, who was growing into a bright, happy, smart little boy under the care of his foster mom. In June of 2015, Joanne and Andrew were finally allowed to have their firstborn son living with them. Andrew returned to practicing law, and Joanne continued her work as a cosmetologist. For the first time in years, things seemed to be turning around. Having passed 26 home visits by social workers, in April of 2016, AJ's case was closed. Things stayed quiet for Andrew and Joanne, AJ and his baby brother, for nearly two years until small signs of trouble started to show up. Joanne stopped working. They failed to enroll AJ into his preschool. The couple was missing payments on their shared home. And by the time that AJ was three, Joanne had cut off contact from her family entirely. Andrew and Joanne had grown more estranged, living together only for the sake of their children. To help earn extra money, they rented out their extra room and basement, sometimes to addicts that they knew before getting sober. Though things were growing worse at home, DCFS wasn't involved again until March 21st, 2018. Joanne was found asleep in her car by police and claimed to have been drugged at a friend's party the night before. She was taken to a hospital where Andrew and her sons met her. The hospital social worker noticed that AJ had odd bruising to his face and forehead, that the boys were quite dirty with their clothes on inside out. With fresh track marks visible on Joanne, a new investigation was opened. Though a caseworker is supposed to make it out for a home visit within 24 hours, it wasn't until eight days later that someone was able to get to Andrew and Joanne's home. But when no one answered, it wouldn't be for another month until the social worker would actually see AJ and Joanne face to face. During this visit, AJ's bruises were gone. The house seemed safe and clean, and Joanne was back to getting treatment for her addiction. The investigation was closed for a second time. A few months later, in September of 2018, as AJ is almost five years old, DCFS was called again after it appeared that the family home was run down and the power was out. When the Crystal Lake police came to check the house, both boys reportedly appeared to be happy and healthy. DCFS was notified that the police had an encounter with the family but there was no follow-up as DCFS decided not to investigate just because the power was out. In December of 2018, this time it was Joanne who called the cops. She reported that her ex-boyfriend stole her phone and some medications. When police arrived at the home, the smell of feces was overwhelming and the home was dirty, cluttered, and in disrepair. Two windows were left open leaving the house very cold as it was in the middle of December. 
While there, police noted that AJ had a large bruise on his hip. Joanne and AJ originally told investigators that the bruise was from AJ being hit accidentally by their 50-pound family dog. But when left alone to talk to a doctor, he said, maybe someone hit me with a belt. Maybe mommy didn't mean to hurt me. With a possible confession of abuse, an investigator from DCFS made a surprise visit to the house the next day and reportedly found it in much better condition than it was before. Andrew assured the caseworker that Joanne was not using drugs, and he denied ever punishing the boys physically. A few weeks later, this third case was closed. And in February of 2019, Joanne was pregnant again, this time with the child of a fellow addict who was renting out a room in her home with Andrew. However, AJ would never have a chance to meet his youngest sibling. On April 18th, 2019, Andrew Friend, AJ's father, called the police to report his five-year-old son missing. He told police that he had last seen AJ when they put him to bed the night before, and that when he woke up in the morning, he couldn't find AJ in his room. His 911 call was calm, and he stated that he had already searched for AJ in the neighborhood before he called the cops, including going to local parks, the school, and other places that they often took AJ. When police arrived at Andrew and Joanne's home to begin the investigation, they again found the home to be a disaster. There were clothes and garbage strewn throughout the home, and parts of the flooring were ripped up. Another DCFS investigation is started, and AJ's younger brother is put in the care of a foster parent, though he didn't show any clear signs of abuse at the time. Right away, the suspicion focused on AJ's parents, as it was unlikely that he could have been taken from his family home in the middle of the night, or that he could have wandered out from the house. Canine units were used to track AJ's potential movements, and they found that AJ had not walked away on foot. Though initially cooperative, as Andrew and Joanne realized they were the primary suspects, they began to stop cooperating with the investigation. Between the years of the DCFS complaints and the documented history of drug abuse and unsafe housing conditions, police grew more and more certain that Joanne and Andrew knew where their son was. Nonetheless, Joanne attended vigils, helped hang posters looking for AJ, and pleaded for information on his whereabouts. But just six days later, police finally found AJ, his body wrapped in plastic and buried in a shallow grave near Woodstock, Illinois. Joanne and Andrew were charged with his murder. Joanne Cunningham and Andrew Friend were immediately arrested after AJ's dead body was found. An autopsy told investigators that AJ had died from multiple blunt force trauma to his head. His body was covered in bruises and other signs of abuse. 
By the time that AJ's body had been found, he had been dead for at least 10 days, meaning that three or four days had gone by before Andrew called in that AJ was missing. Once arrested, Andrew began to talk to the police about what life was like at home for AJ. He shared that he and Joanne believed that AJ had oppositional defiant disorder, which was why he was, in their opinion, defiant and disobedient. Andrew said that on the day that AJ died, AJ had bargained with Joanne to receive less physical punishments, and Joanne compromised by deciding that cold showers would be his punishment. When they found that AJ had lied about wetting the bed, Joanne forced him to stand in the freezing water for nearly 20 minutes before Andrew came and put him to bed. According to Andrew, they didn't realize he had died until much later in the night, though this doesn't account for the head trauma that the medical examiner listed as his cause of death. It would later come to light that Joanne, in a rage, had beaten her own son, a five-year-old, to death with a detachable metal showerhead. When she and Andrew realized that he was dead, Andrew moved his body to the basement before eventually burying it in Woodstock. On April 25th, Joanne and Andrew had set their bail at $5 million each. Both were facing 20 different charges, including first-degree murder, aggravated battery, and failure to report a missing child. While in prison, and a little more than a month after killing AJ, Joanne gave birth to her fourth child, a baby girl. The paternity test confirmed this baby's father to be Joanne Cunningham's ex-boyfriend and not Andrew Friends. After months in prison awaiting her trial, on December 5th, 2019, Joanne pleaded guilty to the murder of AJ in order to avoid a life sentence. During her trial, she claimed that she loved her son and her drug addiction was to blame for his death. Those in attendance, including her friends and family, refused to accept her excuse. Those who gathered called themselves Roar for AJ and were hoping that Joanne would receive the maximum 60-year sentence for what she did to her son. After pleading guilty on July 16, 2020, Joanne made one final court appearance before the judge at the sentencing hearing. She was 37 at the time. Ultimately, she was given 35 years in prison for beating her son to death. A few months after Joanne's sentencing in September 2020, Andrew Friend pleaded guilty to aggravated battery of a child, voluntary manslaughter, and concealment of a homicidal death. He was given a 30-year sentence, 18 years of which he must serve before he would be eligible for parole. Joanne's surviving children had been living with foster families who were showing them a care and love that it seems like they never got while at home. Given years of being trashed and unclean, the house where AJ was killed was falling apart and had been foreclosed on. The city of Crystal Lake approved the demolition of the home, and the demolition company actually offered to do it for free. In addition to prosecuting AJ's parents, the DCFS worker and supervisor who investigated the most recent hotline complaint were also sued for their handling of the case. The prosecutors claim that the DCFS workers showed an inhumane difference to AJ's safety. Who knows what would have happened if there was a better follow-up in the series of complaints before AJ's death? 
Though AJ's murderers are behind bars, the context of the situation begs a larger question about the responsibility of DCFS and other organizations designed to protect children from this very situation. How might this situation have ended differently if the caseworkers assigned to AJ's life were more equipped to give the attention and concern that was needed? What other wonderful children are suffering due to a system that can't help them? We know that even with Joanne Cunningham and Andrew Friend away in prison for years to come, won't make up for what happened to AJ, and we hope that others will learn from this case to reach out whenever they suspect a child might be in harm's way. You can contact the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline 24-7 at 1-800-422-4453 or childhelphotline.org. This completes this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.